0: Some weeks back on the program, we had the privilege of speaking with Tony Wheeler, the founder of the Lonely Planet uh, guidebook series and so much more. During our chat, he said that he thought that there was a, a still a role to play, and probably always will be, for the travel consultant, the travel agent. Now, we've, uh, we've spoken with one on this program before, Stan Godwin, a specialist on China, and he had some good things to say about uh, his art, and I think it'd be a good time to bring him back at this point to continue that conversation. So I'm happy to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stan Godwin.
1: Well, pleasure to be here. Uh, and also very pleased to hear what Mr. Wheeler had to say about the travel <laughs> community. I'm a big fan of um, the Lonely planet series and have been for many, many years.
0: I, uh, I couldn't live without them. I, I, I just owe Tony Wheeler a great debt for places I've been, and his guidebook certainly greased the skids for making the visit uh, a lot easier.
1: I, I still have my China guidebook from 1987 that got me on my first backpacking adventure through China. I kept it as a souvenir.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I never threw any of mine away. When I took my trip around the world and had eight of them in my backpack, I still have eight. Well, I still have chunks of eight of them left because I took a razor blade and cut out all the countries I wasn't going to visit. But, uh, um, but you know, when it comes to, to traveling at the really exotic places, sometimes you just uh, you know even Lonely Planet is um, maybe not enough. I've talked to you before about uh, going into the place that I think. It's probably least visited by Americans because there's so few people that ever came from that area of the world to this country. We, we seem to have taken people from everywhere. But I would say one spot that was not in that category would be Central Asia. And uh, Matt, would, let's talk a little bit about the, the, what we would call, I guess, for lack of a better term, the stands from Pakistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and a few other stands.
1: Tajikistan Yeah. This is on my, on my radar. And of course, my name being Stan, I have a special soft (laughs) heart on my heart for the Stan. Um, uh, um, It's been there for quite some time. And you know, I'm going to leave Afghanistan off of my travel radar for the moment. Uh, My sister was there in 1976 as a backpacker, sat on the head of the boot at Bamiyan, and it's a great tragedy that that's something that nobody will ever have the chance to do again. But other than Afghani and maybe Paki. You know, the rest of the stands are definitely on the travel radar these days. The the traveling public is always looking for the next thing. Yeah. And a decade ago, it might have been Myanmar. Um, Well, now every, you know, luxury cruise, river cruise company in the world has a boat in Myanmar. Some have two or
0: three. Really? And,
1: oh, yes, yes, there are. um, uh, And uh, Uniworld has just announced that they're going to put a ship on the Ganges starting next year. Wow. So trying to find a place that is not discovered is getting to be harder and harder. It's kind of curious to me that an area of the world that has been historically important for you know, well over a thousand years is now coming back into you know, both the traveling public and the general world's attention. Um,
0: yeah, I guess if you're looking at the big world map between China and the Middle East, I guess the Caspian Sea in that area, there's these, all these former Soviet republics. It used Correct. to be the area of the great silk trade between, between Europe and China.
1: From the start of the silk trade, which, you know, you can argue when it started, the, you know, the Chinese say that it goes back to the Han Dynasty, you know, somewhere around 2,000 years ago. Um, that was the main communication route between the great civilizations of the East and the West.
0: Well, Stan, that has to be, because my understanding is the Roman Colosseum used to have silk that would cover it uh, during the day as a sunscreen. They, and they obviously must have got it from China.
1: Well, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that particular story, but there's a great story that floats around about a Roman legion that was captured in battle by the Parthians, who then employed those merc- as mercenaries to fight on their eastern frontier against the Han Dynasty, who then captured them and put them to work manning a fortress on the Great Wall.
0: Really? Um,
1: there's a, uh, a book simply entitled The Great Wall. Uh, And I can't think of the author off the top of my head, but he recounts that story, and it's in the area where that region supposedly has settled everybody firmly, completely, and believes that it is the absolute truth, and that they're descendants of Roman legionnaires.
0: Wow. Do you see any Roman genes in that population? (laughs)
1: Uh, It's 2,000 years ago. They kind of blended in. I guess so.
0: There's no Marcello Mastriani's running around northern China, probably.
1: But the... um, the interesting thing is, you know, that, that as, as a, I was out in the western part of China last year doing the Chinese side of the Silk Road, uh, and one of my traveling companions had done quite a bit of study on it before. And as he pointed out, nobody actually got on a camel in Xi'an and rode all the way to Venice. You know, <laughs> Marco Polo, maybe, maybe not, depends on who you ask.
0: No, he's full but of crap.
1: <laughs> most people went, you know, 100 miles, got to their next city, turned around and went back to their original pace. Most of the people. Traveling the soap road, we only traveling little bits of it. And at every stop along the way, people stop and trade what's on their camel train, what's on the next camel train. Well, all of these trade routes from China, from India, from Afghanistan, from Persia, from the Middle East, came together in what is now Uzbekistan, most notably in Samarkand. And it was one of the most important, wealthiest, phenomenally multicultural cities on the planet for literally a 1,000 years and it wasn't until the Portuguese started trading by sea with China that the Silk Road started to decline and it became, you know, more of an obscure bywater and sort of lost, lost to the best of history.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. I think my ancestors are to blame for that particular little incident. Well, they are, you know, uh,
1: <laughs> You know what, Macau, Portuguese food, 600 years of Portuguese colonies mixed with soft Chinese cooking, some of the best food on the planet, so I'll forgive you for that one.
0: All right, fair enough.
1: And, you know, if, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, the Chinese have just signed a massive, uh, you know, $46 billion in the number that I seem to remember, a deal to build a highway down through the Khyber Pass into Pakistan. Uh, actually, not go through the Khyber Pass, but anyway, down into Pakistan, where they right. will establish a seaport for both commercial and military use. Uh, that loud, oh, no, you just heard was uh, from India. Um, and the Chinese are looking at those Central Asian republics, which were for, you know, 100 years forcibly under the influence of Moscow Moscow, and looking at them going, hmm, can you say emerging markets? <laughs> and you know, there's oil and gas and minerals and all sorts of natural wealth there. You know very underdeveloped in terms of you know their infrastructure for producing consumer goods and we all know the chinese do that very very well so they're building highways and rail links and such to connect their western um areas uh, the area of xinjiang uh to these countries and it is you know sadly going you know sadly or not going to be an area that is going to be changing very rapidly over the next 10 to 20 years so yeah if you want to go see it, go
0: see it. All right. Um, well, I do want yeah. to go see it, and I'm, I'm hoping you'll some maybe next year be able to help me make that happen.
1: Well, we're working on that. I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping to take out a little group, and you are more than welcome to accompany me. Um,
0: Sounds good. We're,
1: we're, 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 uh, uh, I'm going to leave out Turkmenistan just because I'm not real fond of the politics of it.
0: Well, yeah, the father of all Turkmen. What was his name? He, he named Hi. named the month after his mother and changed the name of the week and tried to build an ice palace in the desert. The guy was completely yeah, yeah, yeah. loony.
1: Yeah, I can't think of the guy's name, but you know, some of my friends were there recently, and they, you know, their last post on Facebook as it crossed into Turkmenistan was, "We'll talk to you in a week." You no know, Facebook in Turkmenistan. Um, which, you know, uh, now China blocks Facebook. Yeah, sure, fine. You got to be a little suspicious of countries that don't want their people, you know, <laughs> um, you know, communicating with the rest of the world.
0: Yes. And while we're speaking, uh, I good. pulled it up. It's Saparmurat Niyazov, the, the the guy there. that he died in 2006 after. Creating one of the world's most eccentric personality cults.
1: weren't you and I talking about one day about doing the tour of all the great dead communist leaders and <laughs> trying to see uh, 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 Chairman Mao and Ho Chi Minh? And, yeah, we
0: better uh, go see know. him before they put him away. They're all preserved still in uh, you know in, in sarcophagi to go look at. Yeah. I, I've seen sure. Lenin and Ho Chi Minh, but I didn't manage to catch Mao when I was in uh, Beijing. I've, so.
1: I've been in Beijing about, well, not about, but a very large number of times, and I've never bothered to stand in line to see him. I see you speak once one get dead dictator. You seen them all, so. <laughs>
0: You know, we should point out, too, that the old Silk Road, uh, the Mongols, building the world's largest land empire, went right through that part of the world, and the populace does resemble the populace of, of Mongolia in the north, certainly, although I know there's a Turkish language, Tur- Turkic languages to the south.
1: Well, actually, the Mongolian language is not completely unrelated. Actually, I think Mongolian is okay. So no, I take that back. Mongolian is not Turkish. But in western China, uh, Xinjiang, the language is Uyghur. And that is definitely a Turkish dialect. Uh, my friend in um, Kashgar, uh, Oscar, can communicate. He said he can go to Turkey and communicate at about 60 to 70% Interesting. with the Turkish speakers. And with everything in between, it's, you know, a matter of, uh, you know, somewhat like the Romance languages, you know, Italian to Spanish to French to Portuguese. You know, you can get by yeah. when
0: you can get by. Well, you've had a chance to go out there to Uyghur land in, in the far west in Xinjiang. There was, there's was been a source of much political strife. Did you see any trouble out there? there? It, is, it, is it all pretty calmed down at this point?
1: Strife, I would say no. Um, the, the Chinese are making it eminently clear that they're in control, that this is not going to be an independent nation now or anytime soon. Um, their response to any sort of activity that might or might not be called terrorism it's a complete iron fist approach. When we got off the airplane in Kashgar, at the bottom of the escalator coming down from the gates was a fully armed squad of Chinese riot police just standing there, just looking intimidating.
0: I'm sure it succeeded in, in intimidating.
1: Yes. Uh, checkpoints on all the roads going through town. Um, in the main square in front of the mosque in Kashgar, which was a lovely, lovely place, and we had a wonderful evening just... Mingling with the people. Uh, we were trying to go tour the mosque, but there was a funeral going on, so we had to wait for that to be over and just sat and hung out with the people and took some great pictures. And I put on my weaker hat and was immediately everybody's best friend. That's a beautiful thing. But over on the side of the square were three Chinese security guards and big dudes, too. I mean, you don't see a lot of six foot three Chinese guys. But big guys in all black uniforms, again, with the helmets and, you know, the machine guns at ready. Just standing there, just keeping an eye on things. Just making sure nothing got out of control. I um, see. And maybe the most touching moment, or, you know, you know, sort of pointed moment, is, was as we were rolling out of Kashgar to go back to the airport a couple of days later. Uh, a whole convoy of uh, people's armed police vehicles was coming in from to town. And this is, you know, military trucks full of troops and a couple of armored personnel carriers. And I said to Oscar, I said, so uh, something going on today? He goes, nope, that's supplies in Kashgar. No activity that you would see or hear about uh it's made very clear that you know nothing's going to be tolerated yeah uh, you know and and you know there are those in our country who think that that's the way you know rest of ethnic minorities should be treated you know I'll leave that to your judgment
0: well on a lighter note, let me ask you a question that we'll, from last this week's program that i was I found quite quite odd uh what do you know about the fact that in China they bring strippers to the funerals?
1: <laughs> haven't been to one of those funerals yet.
0: Um, well, apparently the Chinese government had to crack down because out in rural yeah, areas yeah. they want to have, they want to give the deceased a big send-off to the afterlife, and they want it to be a big, yeah. joyous, well-turned-out occasion. And what better way to bring in the folks than hire some strippers?
1: You know, when I lived in China, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, there weren't a lot of strippers around. so. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I, I yeah, did to tell I, you someday a story about the Chinese Warhouse, but that's another issue entirely. So. It's a huge country. It's a billion plus, down. you remember, billion, 1.3 billion people. And stuff happens there. I mean, at, at some point in every trip in China, I turn around and I look at my, look at the people traveling, and they say, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. <laughs> so back, back to Central Asia. Yeah, so the plan is in um, the fall of next year, I'm heading off and we're going to hit four of the stands. Some of the classic Silk Road cities. Also, um, I'm curious to see Almaty, which is bidding for the Winter Olympics, I think, in 2022, which is... um, Yeah, I think they're bribing
0: pretty heavily. They might get it.
1: Um, Well, the only competition is Beijing right now. Everybody else has dropped out, so we'll see. Um, But there's an ice rink outside of Almaty in the mountains that used to hold. be the place where you'd go if you wanted to set a world record. You know, something about the atmospheric conditions and the ice quality It was a a world-class ice rink.
0: I want to go to Bukhara, uh, where I guess there's still one building left that we know that Genghis Khan actually was in.
1: The last surviving descendant of, of uh, Genghis Khan to sit as a ruling on, on a ruling throne anywhere in the world was, I believe, he was called the Sultan of Bukhara, and uh, he was deposed by the Russians uh, sometime in the 1920s. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. There is actually a picture of a living descendant of Genghis Khan who was still on the throne in the 20th century.
0: Well, if uh, if you look at the, the the Y chromosome studies, it appears that something like a sixth of Asia maybe will <laughs> maybe descended from Genghis you Khan. You know,
1: my ancestors on one side are Russian, and uh, some people have noticed a few slightly Asiatic features in our in, in our in our facial structure. So you know, there may be a little bit of Mongol back in there somewhere. And you know,
0: <laughs> well, heck yeah, they got all the way to Vienna, didn't they? I mean, my God. Yeah,
1: the story of why they quit why they didn't conquer Europe?
0: Yeah, they had a death back home. They had to go home and vote and who'd be the next con.
1: Exactly. Nobody the Europeans never defeated them and the Europeans never stopped them. They just kinda got distracted and never got around to it. It was on their to do list but they never <laughs> quite got to it. <laughs> As much of the rest of Asia can testify, that was probably a good thing. I yeah. Mean. They 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 were a, a very very interesting bunch of people. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been in Mongolia and uh, you know they're nice people. It's just kind of hard to imagine their ancestors just you know, pillaging their way across an entire continent.
0: Yes, Dan, I was there in 1990, I guess it was right at the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Or was it 91? I forget, but it was right at, near the the very end. And uh, boy, Ulan Bator was just I mean, there's no nothing in the stores, but the air was clean. I've seen pictures now. Apparently, it looks like Beijing, just absolutely like smogged they, out.
1: Yeah, that's that but true. It's, but you can thank the Chinese for, their, for, for much of that. There's vast tracts of minerals and resources and such to be had under the Mongolian grasslands. And, um, you know, it's a pretty avarice economy when it comes towards gathering resources and... Um, and I lived for several years in the province of China that is home to, depending on how you ask something, about 11% of the world's coal reserves. Yeah. And um, you ever seen a strip mine? They're pretty impressive. They, uh, they, they take out city block size of chunks of grain at the time. It's, it, it's, it's truly phenomenal. Hmm.
0: Well, one place anyone That's wants to go to Mongolia, I can say one place you probably don't want to waste your time going is to Karakoram. I know when I was there, they were taking tours out to what once was the great, mighty capital of the whole Mongol Empire, but my understanding is that the Chinese, after a while, got after the fall of the, the Mongol leadership, they got pretty tired of being attacked from the north, so they went, they went out there and basically took down every brick in the city.
1: The old Mongolian cities were, were razed to the ground. Um, interestingly enough, in inner Mongolia, on the Chinese side of the border, out in the area called Ordos which is, again, now in the middle of the coal uh, frenzy, um, is a mausoleum dedicated to Genghis Khan, which I have been to. It's at the end of an 11-hour bus ride from Balotel, so it's a little bit out there. Yeah. Probably a better highway these days. And, you know, everybody agrees that Genghis Khan is not buried anywhere near there. Yeah. But for some reason, not quite to be explained, the local authorities decided they needed to build a mausoleum (laughs) to Genghis Khan out there. And we were there. Of all things, there was a wreath-laid... In honor of the memory of Genghis Khan, signed by Jiang Zemin, who was at the time the leader of China. Wow, kind of strange thing.
0: And by the way, when you go to the Four Corners, where Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona come together, mm-hmm. it's not really geographically correct. They moved it because the, the the real spot's inconveniently up in a ravine.
1: More convenient parking lot, where it is
0: now. <laughs> Anyways, gonna
1: check. Come on, you know GPS. Well, somebody did
0: in the modern be- era. Now with GPS, somebody didn't. One. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs>
1: the things he used
0: to be able to get away with, huh? Yeah. Well, Stan, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, we need to have you come back and update us on, on, on things that people may want to know about in the travel world, because I know you have your ear to the ground and uh, your, your time. antenna up.
1: Anytime. The pleasure, as always.
0: Alright, that about does it for time. Our thanks to Stan Godwin, our standby travel agent, As well as, of course, quote, California's Governor Jerry Brown, unquote. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.